the new Star Wars is about to uh, launch in theaters, and my uncle and I have this tradition. Uh, I don't know if I was alive or old enough for like the old good Star Wars when they came into the theater. I may have been alive, but I wasn't old enough to stand in the lines that I've heard about. Uh, but with the, the, the newer, not the brand new that's coming out, but the, the middle, one, two, and three, if you're a Star Wars fan, uh, my uncle and I have a tradition to go to those on opening night. And uh, it's weird. He likes Star Wars a lot, and I like Star Wars some, uh, but we're not like Star Wars fanatics. I just actually learned yesterday uh, doing premarital counseling with some people that there's a Star Wars con. Uh, and by the way, if you ever wonder like what comic con is, it, there's, it means convention. I don't. I should have known that, but uh, so there's a, there's Star Wars conventions. I knew that, but now they've they've made it sound even cooler by shortening it to con. So it's a Star Wars con, uh, but we're not like that. We've never been to one of those, but we we like the old ones, and so we went to the first one of the the newer one, number one in the Star Wars, and and it was a, it was terrible. It was a terrible movie. And so I think for people that, that liked the old ones, especially people who are fanatics about the old ones, like the buildup of, you know, 30 years or 20 years or whatever to wait and then a new one comes out, there was this, I think, just mass level uh, of disappointment that existed. And, and, and we know that the worst movies are the movies that we think are going to be good but aren't, right? Like if you go to a movie with no expectations at all and it's not very good, then it's just not very good. But if you go into a movie thinking, man, I've looked forward to this and I saw the previews and I I have the trailer memorized and it's going to be so epic and then it's terrible, then it's it's worse than if you just would have shown up at the movie and said, I wonder what this is about. Uh, And this is life. Uh, I think that, that we have a worse time being optimistic when we were optimistic about something, but it failed us. Uh, The word that we're going to say a lot this morning, that we're going to kind of think about a lot this morning is disappointment. And in my life, the last couple of years, there's been pretty great disappointment. And uh, that disappointment started with, with two miscarriages that I've detailed a lot up here. And, uh, and I've said this before, I, I didn't, I'm not a, I like my baby, there she is over there being held by Naomi, Uh, someday Bryn's just going to give her to a stranger during church I think and it's going to be weird but I like Naomi so that works out but uh, I never was a person who needed or felt the need to have a a child like it wasn't in my nature and I, I never thought like my life will be complete when I get a kid someday, that just wasn't me, in fact I really really liked my life pre-child and there's some big adjustments right now. I like things to be organized and you should see our upstairs right now. It is like a hurricane and it stresses me out and I don't even like to go upstairs. I just like to go to my new garage office. I now have an office in the garage because I had a baby and and see I liked having an office and so before we had a baby, I'll make that clear, there was no like sweet, like I need to have a baby. This is an important part of my life. But once Bryn got pregnant with those first two children of ours, then there was some expectations built. I started to think about names, and I started to think about baseball, and I started to think about all the things that we could do together. And then, and then those dreams were crushed, and it left me disappointed. The hurt wasn't in that I couldn't have a child in this world. It was that I couldn't have a child that I thought I was going to have in this world with me. And so uh, I think that one of the one of the big 
problems with, with hopelessness. Uh, one of the great causes of hopelessness, I should say, that one of the great things that causes us to be pessimistic is that we have expectations that are crushed, that we are let down in this life, and over time that wears on us and we become, we become pessimistic or hopeless. Uh, we have this, this saying, in fact, where we say, I don't want to get my hopes up. You've said that before. I just don't want to get my hopes up because you know if you get your hopes up and things don't come to fruition and things don't go as planned or as expected, then ultimately it's going to hurt worse than if you wouldn't have had those hopes at all. And I think what happens in people's lives is that over time, we've gotten our hopes up a bunch and our hopes have been crushed or hurt or taken down, torn down by life and by things not going as expected. And, and then over time, this happens enough and we just be kind, kind of become people who, who never want to get our hopes up about anything. And ultimately, we just become kind of pessimistic and joyless and, and we just go, well, it's probably not going to work out this time either because I've seen what happens when I get my hopes up. If you, if you ever want to feel pessimistic, I say this smiling because it was so ridiculous, uh, then just Google stories of disappointment. Uh, I'm going to relay some of them to you so you can feel what I felt this week. But, but uh, if you ever just want to you know, feel sad for whatever reason, uh, Google stories of disappointment because people have now, this is what's happened, uh, they, they need an outlet for their disappointments, it seems. And so they turn to the internet and uh, the first thing that I want to just read to you is this 12-year-old girl talks about her greatest disappointment, and I'm not sure why it got posted online or who posted it online. Uh, it just said, like, 12-year-old girl, and then it gave me this story, and, and apparently her family got a dog. That's how the worst stories start, right? I mean, you got a dog, and, and then, it, and then it, she says this, about a week later, I lost my friend. We had made the heartbreaking decision to take Buddy, they named it, to a reliable animal shelter where he could be adopted. The decision was made because Buddy would grow too big for the backyard. The next morning, I stood with tears of hope that Buddy would find a real home where he would be loved, running down my red face. I wished he could stay and not have to go, but it was best for both of us. There wasn't a thing I could do as I watched my dad pick up Buddy and sat him on the seat of his ute. He closed the door, got in, and drove away. I couldn't hold it in. I burst into tears. I think this 12-year-old girl sums up disappointment. We think that things are going to go a certain way. We think that things are going to be good or better, and then they're not good or they're worse than we had expected. And I think 12-year-old girls, you know, she built this up. I'm going to have a dog and we're going to play and it's going to be my friend and I have this name and, and, and uh, we'll go into high school together and I'll always have somebody that I can turn to and boys are mean to me. And then the backyard's not big enough, a decision that I think should have been made before they adopted the dog, <laughs> but nobody asked me. So then I went further down Google and, and I found this, this thread on this website um, called I Am Disappointment, and these people writing in, and, and not only, and, and I think this is what happened, not only are they saying, I'm disappointed, let me make that clear, they are declaring that they, in fact, have become disappointment, I am disappointment. And I think this is what happens when we're hurt enough in life, when we're disappointed enough, it, it, it ceases to be some emotion that we just feel, and it becomes a part of our very nature and part of our character. 
And, and we would probably not vocalize it unless we're on some you know, message thread on the internet. But, but we don't feel like we're disappointed anymore. We feel like we are disappointment because life has kicked us down so many times we don't want to get our hopes up anymore. I mean, here's just like one of the things that they said. I'll just read some of them. Uh, my 16-year-old daughter didn't even wish me a happy Mother's Day. I feel like just giving up so much emotions going on inside me. And, and you go, wait a minute, that's not that big a deal, right? I mean, that's not that big a deal. She's a 16-year-old girl. But how disappointed just about life do you have to be to get to a point where a 16-year-old girl's not wishing you happy Mother's Day becomes something that absolutely crushes you enough to make you post online about how disappointed you are. That's disappointment. Somebody else said, I am currently a 15-year-old in college. That's exciting. After attending an early attendance to college program my junior year of high school for two semesters, I learned that I won't have the grades to come back in the fall. That's kind of sad, right? I mean, this person's expectations, like, I am a genius. Oh, wait. I didn't get the grades. Another person said, there's a lot I could put here, but the beginning of the story had me in my own house, living away from my family, and I was clueless about how to do it. I didn't know how to budget. I didn't know how to live. I was terrified of budgeting and sucked at it so much. I mean, here's a person, gets out on their own. They're feeling good about life. They, they have a plan or maybe kind of a half plan. I'm going to live on my own. I'm going to be away. I can support myself, and then they fail to budget. And now he's realizing he doesn't have the money. I am disappointment. Well, that's what my mother used to say. Yeah, mom said that all the time, and that was some of the nicer stuff she said. But she is an idiot, so it has never really bothered me too much. But it does bother her because she's writing it online in some thread that she seemingly is looking for approval or something because it bothers us. And some of the time what causes the disappointment in our lives is just what other people say to us and what other people think about us and how other people treat us. And we think, wow, it shouldn't be this way. I should have had a loving mom. I should have had a loving dad. I should have had a brother that cared about me or a sister that cared about me or a spouse that cared about me, but I didn't. And we're left disappointed and hurting and feeling hopeless. Or how about this? It's been a hard two years. As a mother, I'm not performing as well as I used to. I'm blessed with undemanding children, but I can see their puzzlement as I stumble through each day just trying to get the bare minimum done. It'll pass, I'm sure. I love my children too much. It's like, I'm gonna be a great mom and do a good job, and now here I am. And I feel like for two years, I failed my kids, and I'm not doing right by them, and I'm disappointed. I am disappointment. Or another person says, my husband has been acting distant for a while and ready to pick an argument at anything. Too many mixed emotions regarding my marriage right now. Isn't that a big one? Like, I'm going to get into this marriage and my marriage is going to be good and I'm going to have the fairy tale and it's going to be a dream and life is going to be great and, and we'll ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after and it's going to be awesome and then, and then you're in your marriage and it's like it's just not what I thought it was going to be. I am disappointment. I am disappointed about where I am at. This is, this is what life can do to us. And I think that all of us at least have places in our life where we don't just feel disappointment, but where we have labeled ourselves as a disappointment. We have labeled ourselves as a disappointment. And it isn't that we're not good at that thing. It's that we hurt because there was an expectation 
that that thing would be okay and would be good, but it's just not. And so we struggle. And this book that we're going to look at today, this book of Haggai, is a book that speaks directly into the disappointments of life. It speaks directly into this idea that we can have hope despite the disappointment that we so often feel. That we can have optimism despite the fact that we have already labeled ourselves as a disappointment. And this book, like all the other books we've looked at in this series, is written to the Israelite people. Uh, and it's, it's actually written at a, at a really interesting time. And I want to say ahead of time, before we look at this book, that, that, that it's really important, especially as we study this book, to not take all of the promises and all of the warnings that you read in the book of Haggai as specific to Christians. Because the nation of Israel had specific warnings and specific promises and specific punishments and specific rewards that it was given by God that don't necessarily apply to us. Perhaps these promises aren't specific to us. Perhaps these warnings aren't specific to us. But really, what is the driving theme, the point that, that the book is trying to make, that God is trying to speak to me through this book? And to do that, it's important we understand just the historical context as we've done in all these books. And the book is written in 520 B.C. It's one of the few Old Testament books where we can actually just put a date right smack dab on there and say this book was written in 520 B.C. And, and just to put it in context for those of us who read the Bible and have been around church and know the stories of the Bible, it's a book that's written after the story of Daniel. And it's a book that is written about the time of Zechariah. Uh, they're actually contemporaries. They were probably friends. They probably hung out. And it's a book that's written just before Esther. And it's really wrapped up in the story of the exiles returning from Babylon. And if you've been following along in, in this series so far, we've seen kind of, it's been good if you just like history, because we've seen the history of some of the greatest empires kind of interweave with these books we've studied. We've talked about finding hope in a world that really sometimes feels hopeless. And I think we have a picture to put up for you. The Assyrians were in prominence when we studied the first week, when we had our first sermon. Uh, and God said, look, the Assyrians will no longer be prominent anymore. And that happened. They were crushed by the Babylonians. And then last week we studied a book uh, that, uh, that really said, well, hey, the Babylonians are going to come into Jerusalem and they're going to take it over. That was God's big plan in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, the Babylonians are going to come over. They're going to take you over. And that's why I'm going to punish the sin that exists in the world. And, and then the Babylonians will eventually be punished. God says that. Isn't that. It's amazing because he makes this prediction about a nation, an empire that's not even that big of a deal. He says they will rise into power and they will be crushed. And, and when we read our book today, when we read the book of Haggai, we see that what's taken place is that the Persian Empire has started to destroy the Babylonian Empire. And that's what's happened. So the Babylonians now have been pushed down. They've been, they've been quenched as a, as a world empire. And the Persians are taking over. And the Persians had a whole, this is important, had a whole different philosophy uh, about how to rule over the people they conquered. The Babylonians said, we'll take all your best and your brightest and we'll take them back to our center, our hub. Uh, you can be with us. The Persian Empire 
They said, you go be home and we'll send a ruler out to rule over all of you people. And so what had happened to the Jewish people as they had been taken into exile at the hand of the Babylonians just as Habakkuk had heard from God. And the Persian empires had taken over the Babylonians and they said to a lot of the ethnic uh, uh, people, they said, okay, hey, here's the deal. You get to now go back to your home. And so a remnant of Jewish people head home to rebuild the temple. You can read about it in the book of Ezra in your Bibles. They, they, they go home to rebuild the temple. And, and when they get home, it's not like they thought it was going to be. Um, you see, they leave and they left Jerusalem being a pretty good city. Uh, the nation of Israel still having some structure and they return to really just a, a city and a nation that has been ransacked and destroyed completely. The Babylonians had come in, wiped them out, pillaging nations around them had gone, well, the Babylonians kind of destroyed them. They're not a big deal anymore. Let's go in and see what we can take away from them. So other nations had come in and pillaged them. And then the, the Persians on their way to Egypt to go fight the Egyptians had come through Jerusalem again and, and had hurt Jerusalem further. And so this group, this remnant who comes back to build the temple with spiritual fervor and spiritual excitement is probably a group of people who, who were leaving the Babylonian area because they hadn't been successful there. Some had become rich and had really invested in Babylon and become like an important part of the Babylonian communities, but some hadn't. And these are probably the people that had come back and they probably come back like our people traveled west in America. If I can just get west and there will be there will be gold or there will be food or there will be land and everything will be good. If I could just get back to Jerusalem, then everything will be okay and I'll go back and I'll build the temple, but life will be better for me. But life is not better and they show up and it's in ruins. And then there's famine caused by drought and these people begin to fight just for their very existence. One author said, anything other then struggle for existence was not possible. And then he went on to say, far less one of religious enthusiasm. I mean, they come back with spiritual fervor. We'll build the temple, we'll build the temple, we'll build the temple. And then they get there and it's like, wait a minute, the temple. I just want to stay alive. The Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia said, the preoccupation with the desperate struggle for existence amidst un." Promising surroundings seems to have taken over all the available time and energy of the return exiles. More seriously than this, the book of Haggai seems to indicate that the state of shock that must have accompanied these conditions had sapped the spiritual zeal of the people, making them apathetic about restoring the ruined sanctuary to something of its former grandeur. The people show up in Jerusalem thinking, we will rebuild and they don't get very far because life disappoints them. And here's what Haggai says, writing just these, these kind of four uh, oracles down that, that take place over just about four months. It's an interesting book because we can time it out so well. It writes the first one in September 
uh, or October, uh, somewhere in that range. And then he writes the last one in, in the month of December. And, and we kind of get to see what happens. We'll look at three of them today. In Haggai 1.1, we read, In the second year of King Darius, on the second day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel and Shealtiel and the governor of Judah and Joshua, son of Josadic, the high priest. Now, Haggai is a, a prophet that would have traveled to Babylon. He may have been somebody who was taken to Babylon in the exile. And now he has returned with Ezra and all the other people to restore this city. And and I think it's important because when we read this book, I think we need to understand that Haggai is not some outsider coming in and saying, don't be disappointed. Because that's never helpful, right? I mean, somebody else not knowing what you've been through and what you've gone through and saying, well, it's not that big a deal. But Haggai is in the midst of this disappointment right along with the people. And God shows up and gives him this prophecy. Haggai 1-2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not come to rebuild the Lord's house. You see, the people had laid a foundation almost immediately when they got back, and then life had taken over and disappointment had taken over. And, and now they've come to a place they come to a place where, where the disappointment has been so big that they just look at God and they say, God, here's the deal. Now is not the time for us to be focused on things of you because I'm trying to deal with all this other stuff that has kicked me down and hurt me and left me feeling this disappointment that I feel. You see, we have this mindset too, don't we? I mean, don't we do this? Disappointment builds on itself. Disappointment leads to more disappointment because we go, well, I'm disappointed about this and so I won't do that. And then we're more disappointed because we didn't do the other thing. And and disappointment seems to be this this snowball that, that eventually carries us all the way down to the bottom. And for these people, they go, well, it's just too disappointing and it's too hard and it's not what we thought it was going to be. And so the foundation's laid, but God, we will eventually get around to doing what you want us to do. And this is the reason that Haggai is receiving this message from the Lord. You've probably done it. God, I'll serve you. I will serve you, God. But right now, I'm dealing with the loss of this job. I I will serve you, God, but right now, my health isn't what it should be. I I will serve you, God, but my spouse isn't being that nice to me. I will serve you, God, but work isn't what I thought it should be. People aren't treating me that well. I, I will serve you, God, but I'm just a little disappointed about what life has become right now. And this is exactly where these people are at. This is exactly what they are feeling. God, we want to serve you. We came here to serve you. But right now, we can't serve you. Disappointment does that to us. It continues, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It it is a time for you yourselves to be living Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? You see, paneled houses are actually a sign of comfort. Uh, Some people would say they were a sign of wealth. And so what seems to have taken place for these people who have come back with Ezra is that the struggle for life itself has slightly dissipated. They've kind of figured things out, but yet they're stuck in the same mindset. God, I will serve you. I will serve you when all of this is over with. But now it is kind of over. And so now they've placed really their comfort above their relationship 
with God. This happens. We say, like, going back to the job illustration, God, I would serve you, but right now I've lost my job and I'm trying to find a job. And then we find a job. And then we go, well, God, I would serve you, but work is kind of busy right now. Don't we do that? I mean, don't we go from like the good to the bad and, and it just, we continue in the midst of disappointment, we turn from serving the God that we have claimed we want to serve or for some, we in the midst of our disappointment say, I will never serve that God. And eventually we come out of the disappointment and we are in the midst of comfort and it's the comfort then that turns us away from serving the God of the universe. And this is exactly what these people have experienced. I need to get this one thing done, God, before I serve you because you've left us in the midst of disappointment. And then they get that thing done and the houses and the shelter are up and some of their needs are being met and they say, well, God, maybe later. Because right now we need to get a little bit more comfortable. He continues. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. One question that is super important just about life in general is this. Do you give careful thought to your ways? I mean, I I think that most of us probably give very little thought to what we actually do. We are, in some ways, slaves to our circumstances. We are slaves to our experiences, just kind of going through life saying, well, life has led me this way and this way, and it kind of makes sense that I do that next. And Haggai stops these people in the midst of their kind of coming out of disappointment but still being disappointed and, and not doing what is right and, and just says, hey, here's, here's what you ought to do. Stop and actually think about what you're doing. And I think it's some of the greatest advice that we can ever have. I mean, just pause and go, my life right now, am I in my life right now? Am I doing what I ought to be doing or am I just doing what I've always done or doing what disappointment has led me to or doing what makes me feel comfortable? I guess says, give careful thought to your ways, the way in which you were living. And, and then he talks about this disappointment that they are experiencing and it's the disappointment of always being dissatisfied and I think that disappointment does this to us I think that disappointment leaves us with an inability to ever feel like things are good enough some people will spend their whole lives their whole lives going well life is pretty good but it's not as good as I expected it to be It's not as good as I wanted it to be. And sometimes you know this, if you have moments in time where you can look back to or things that that just haven't gone the way as you planned them to go, uh, they haven't been up to your expectations, then nothing seems to satisfy you because it's always that one thing that wasn't good enough. Well, I have a great job now, but I didn't get the job I wanted back in 1985. And if I would have had that job, life would have been so better, so I'll never, and so much better, and so I'll never be satisfied in this position in life. Disappointment does that. When you're disappointed about something big, it makes everything else unable to satisfy us. It, it makes life just seem not very good. 
Because we are always comparing life to what life could have been or should have been or we thought it was going to be to the dream or to the vision that we one time had. And that guy looks at these people and is like, well, you planted, but you never have enough. And even though you earn your wages, it's never enough for you. It never satisfies you because you're stuck in some ways in your disappointment. In your disappointment, you're not serving God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. He repeats it. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. It's not the, it's not the answer that we want because this is the answer to our disappointment. God looks down. He says, I get that you're disappointed. I get that life hasn't gone the way that you thought. I get that you came back here with great expectations and now you're struggling for your very existence. I understand that it isn't the way that you wanted it to be. Now think about what you're doing. Go up into the mountains, get the wood and serve me the way that you're supposed to. What God says is the answer for our disappointment is to get back to a place or to a place for the first time where we are serving God in the way that God has called us to serve him. C.S. Lewis has this, this concept that he so often describes, and I don't want to try to do it because you can't just give it to you in, in two seconds, and his quotes are difficult to understand out of context. But basically he says, there's a first thing in life and then there are second things. And he says, as long as we serve second things, they will never fully satisfy us. But when we begin to focus on the first thing, everything else satisfies us more. And you could probably guess this, but the first thing in C.S. Lewis's mind and in God's mind and in the word of God's writings is the service of God. And C.S. Lewis's point is that everything will always disappoint you somewhat if you are focused on serving the things that are going to disappoint you, and that is everything but God. My grandma used to say to me, all the time as a kid, it seems like, she would say, everybody will disappoint you in this life, only God will not disappoint you. And she would say, I will disappoint you, and your dad will disappoint you, but God will never, he will never let you down. And here in the book of Haggai, we see these people disappointed by the circumstances of life. And God says, here's the answer to your disappointment. It may not be an answer you like. It may not be work a little harder and everything will be better for you. It may not be just invest more time or, or try a different approach or become more creative. There's no self-help answer here. God says, hey, you're disappointed? Serve me in the way that I've called you to serve me. What he says is focus on, on my glory and not your sad story. And I think that's one of the main calls in the book of Haggai is to focus on God's glory and not your sad story. If you are a person who is pessimistic, who feels hopeless, then the key, I think one of the keys is to take your eyes off of your experience and your life and the things that you deal with and to make everything about bringing praise and honor to the God of the universe. If you're not a Christian, you may have used this as an excuse to not be a Christian. I would be a Christian, but look what God has done to me. Look what God has allowed to happen. Look what God has, has put me through. Look at the disappointments in my life. If you only could know what I've been through, then you would never serve that God of yours. 
And God said, all this other stuff that you're trying is never going to satisfy you. It's never going to leave you feeling not disappointed. So serve me. And this next part is really the part that we need to be careful because we can't apply it strictly to ourselves necessarily. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. God defines the word disappointment. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin. Will each of you, while each of you is busy with your own house. God gives us this definition of disappointment. Merriam-Webster's describes, defines disappointment in almost the same way. Feeling sad, unhappy, or displeased because something was not as good as expected or because something you hoped for or expected did not turn out to happen. God says you are disappointed. And then God goes on to say, you are disappointed in part because I have made it so that you could not have the things that you wanted. I have punished you. And this is the part where we cannot strictly say, well, every time I'm disappointed, it's because God did something to me. Every time I'm disappointed, it's because God is punishing me. The Israelites had these warnings from God. As a nation, if you don't do what I've called you to do, if you turn your back on me, then I'm going to punish you and I'm going to punish you through famine and I'm going to punish you through exile and I'm going to punish you in these kind of grand nationalistic ways. God has not said those things to us. There is not a one-to-one ratio. I'm disappointed. Life didn't go as expected and so therefore I must be punished. And so we must recognize that. But the other thing we must recognize is that God does punish people who love him. God does punish Christians, the people that serve him, who follow him, who have placed their faith in him. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And so I would say if life just keeps being disappointing for you, then you better ask this question. Is there anything in my life that I'm doing or not doing that God wants me to do or does not want me to do? If you are disappointed constantly in life, then you should ask yourself, are you giving careful thought to your ways? Are you considering how you are living in accordance with what God has called you to? The New Bible Companion says, they put their own interests before God's. They need to understand the high priority of commitment. True, they, are no long, they, they no longer had a problem with worshiping pagan idols, but they had simply moved on to another form of idolatry, putting personal comfort over advancing the kingdom of God. And I think this is the principle. This is at the heart of what Haggai is saying. Uh, this is at the heart, something that goes beyond just the nation of Israel into every person who has ever followed God. When you are disappointed, when you are disappointed, have you, because of that disappointment or leading to that disappointment, have you placed your own comfort and your own desires and your own wants and your own wishes and your own goals and your own dreams above moving the kingdom of God forward, above your commitment to the God of the universe, above your obedience to him? I mean, God just looks down and, and at these people, he says, look, searching for hope 
and personal comfort is absolutely hopeless. I think sum up what, what Haggai has relayed to us from God is that searching for hope and personal comfort will always be hopeless. But that's what we do. We're like, I'm disappointed, but if I just become more successful in this area, or if I can just get that thing, or if I can just, 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 and God looks down and says, you're never going to find true comfort, true hope, in striving for your own goals and your own comfort. Searching for hope and personal comfort is absolutely hopeless. Haggai continues, the people, check this out, the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. You see, God's promises had been slow in coming and that's a pitfall for a lot of people in their service of God, is it not? I mean, these people are like, God is promised these things to us that the nation will be great again and that Jerusalem will be the center of the world and it hasn't happened and we've been here and we've tried and we've been here a couple of years and his slowness to, to fulfilling his promises had caused them disappointment that had caused them to reject God even in the midst of their own comfort and this happens to us we go well God says that he will be with me and he won't forsake me but I can't feel that right now and God says that he will work everything into my good, but I can't sense that right now. So I'll just stop serving him and I'll focus on my own personal comfort. And what happens is that even when we come to the word of God and we're reminded of those promises, we often neglect to make changes and to say, God, I will return to a place where I will serve you. But this remnant of people to whom Haggai is writing, they were reminded of the commands and the will and the hope and the punishment of God and they do something that we are, are often too slow to do or we neglect to do it all together. They actually make a change. And they go, okay, I know life hasn't gone as planned, but God, I remember that you are the one who is to be served and you have reminded us of our purpose and so I will serve you. And what's cool is these people almost immediately start building. And here's what Haggai says. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. This is the promise that we have, that God is with us. We don't have the promise of always being successful. I'd love to give you that promise. We don't have the promise, even if you're the, the, the greatest Christian who's ever lived, to have a life that is filled with just things that bring joy and nothing that brings sadness. We don't have a promise of wealth or prosperity. But we have this promise that God is with us. And we even have the greater promise that when we are obedient to God, he is with us in a stronger, more powerful way than when we are not obedient to God, when we are not living 
a life that is about the things of God. The book continues, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadic, the high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. You see, what's happened is these people have started building again. And they're looking at what they're building. And some of them were around when the first temple still stood before the Babylonians had wiped it out, had destroyed it. And they're building. And they're going, this is not nearly as good as the old one. And disappointment sets back in. Isn't that what happens? I mean, according to Jewish tradition, the second temple was missing the Ark of the Covenant the Urim and Thummim and the the Holy Fire and the Shekinah glory and the Holy Spirit. Kind of big deals. And they're building away with their hammers and they're going, this is not what we expected. This is disappointing. And God comes down and goes, hey, I want to remind you that I'm still with you. And I also want to remind you that I have made great promises to you. And I want to remind you of this that my spirit will be upon you. I mean, they're reflecting in some ways on what is missing and not on what they had. And what they had was the promises of God and the presence of God and the spirit of God. And this last promise that God will be with us is a promise that goes for all Christians. Because Jesus, as he leaves, says in Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus is with us always, if we place our faith in him. And in the New Testament, we see that this promise of the Spirit is even magnified because the Spirit is promised to all people who place their faith in Jesus. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the only optimism that won't disappoint us is optimism that is based on the love of God. And if you're not basing your hope and your optimistic thinking on God's love, that he is with us and that he has given us wonderful promises to ultimately make us succeed and joyful, maybe not in this life, but in the next. And if you are not placing your hope and your optimism in the fact that God's spirit is upon us who are Christians, then then that which you hope for will ultimately prove hopeless. The only optimism that won't disappoint is an optimism that is based on God's love for you. God looks down and says, hey, I know that you've seen it and you're looking at it and it doesn't seem like it's as good and you're disappointed once again. But boy, oh boy, remember that I am with you and that I love you and that I care about you. And I have made great promises about what this temple will be and what this city will be and what this nation will be. And continues, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. 
The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This first statement that once more the heavens will be shaken is quoted in the book of Hebrews 12.25. Uh, excuse me, in 12.26. And, and right in 12.26 and 27, well, it's surrounded by these other two promises that I think are important for understanding the heart of it. 12.25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? First, there's a warning. I am God and I am strong and I am powerful and it doesn't matter if you're disappointed, you better place your faith in me because I am the one who can destroy. And then in, in Hebrews 12, 28, right after this heaven shaking part, it says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. What the book of Hebrews is, is saying about this passage way back in Haggai is this, God is great and so no matter how disappointed you are, no matter how bad life gets, serve him anyway. Serve him anyway. And in the book of Hebrews, we see that he's talking to Christians who might have to actually die for their faith. And he looks at them and goes, remember that God is powerful and so do not, do not, do not turn your back on him, but serve him even when it seems hopeless. Despite all your disappointment and your happiness and your sadness and your, your, your hurt and your turmoil and your struggle, despite it all, we should serve God because God is the one who is powerful over all the earth. And then there's this other part that's so good. It's so good. God says, I will make this temple more glorious than the last temple. And here's what's so cool about it to me. Um, somebody that studied the Bible a lot and usually kind of knows what's coming. I actually thought when I read this and I was studying for this sermon, I thought, that doesn't sound right. I'm pretty sure that the second temple, this is what I was thinking, I'm pretty sure that this second temple was not as good as the first temple. It wasn't as beautiful. Jewish tradition even suggests that. that. And here's the cool part. This is, this is mind-blowing to me, and if it doesn't make you want to place at least some hope in God, then nothing will. Uh, so they build this temple. And it's not that great compared to the first temple. But hundreds of years later, a new kingdom takes over. And it's the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome as we know them. And, and this guy named Herod shows up on the scene. And Herod is really into architecture. And Herod wants to build beautiful buildings to make known that he was a great leader and a great ruler. He wanted his name to last forever. And one of the most important building projects to Herod was the temple. And so Herod looks at this temple and he starts to rebuild it. And they start to do more construction. And ultimately what takes place is that Herod's temple, as it becomes called, is way bigger. And in some ways way better than the first temple. Here's, here's a picture to demonstrate. These people died thinking God cannot possibly come through on this promise. God cannot possibly make this second temple more glorious than the first temple because they were looking backwards. But we have the privilege of living thousands of years later and going, wait a minute. In a few hundred years, this obscure promise in the book of Haggai came true. It came true. 
And I believe that today as we stand here and we look back, it's important for us, it's really important for us to recognize that God always comes through on his promises. And we have a choice to make. We can make a choice in our lives to go, well, I don't see God working and I'm constantly disappointed and I just, I, I just don't think God can come through or will come through and I don't want to serve him because I'm trying to fix my life and I'm trying to make things better. And, and we can focus on the disappointments of life or we can recognize that the only true optimism is an optimism that is placed in God and his love for us and his presence in our life and the promises that he has made to us. He goes on and he makes this promise to these people at the very end. I'm going to skip uh, several verses. And uh, he says in verse 19 at the very end, from this day on, I will bless you, will bless you. Later on, Jesus shows up on the scene and, and he talks about how blessed we can be through relationship with him. And he uses this word makarios, which I, I, I define for us often here, uh, responsible for at least two tattoos in this world with this word um, from sermons. I'm very proud of that fact. Although I don't uh, have the commitment ability to get a tattoo, it would be the tattoo I got. And uh, it can be defined as inner satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances. God looks at these Israelites and says, I will bless you. And Jesus looks at us and says, come to me and I will bless you. And it doesn't mean that we will no longer have disappointment. What it means is that we now, if we will look at the promises and the presence and the hope that God gives us, we can have internal satisfaction despite all the disappointment in life. And what it ultimately means is that someday we will live in a place, if we place our faith in Jesus, we will live in a place, a place called heaven that will have no more disappointment because it will live up to every expectation that we can possibly have and far more. As I was looking through stories of disappointment online, I stumbled upon this, this website where people write kind of short stories, but uh, this girl, Jaren, wrote the following, there is one thing I desire most from this life, and that is to feel the true meaning of loving someone who loves you just the same. I've tried to find this love many times, only to ruin my chances by scaring people off. I often find myself wondering, does anyone really love me? Will anyone really love me? Or am I just a waste of space? Is there hope for me in the future? Or should I just give up now? You see, disappointment does that to us. If we're disappointed enough, eventually we just, we just start to ask these questions. Am I a waste of space? Is there any hope in the future? Or should I just give up now? And I read that, and I was just making a sermon, and I couldn't let it go. I had to write. And so I create, I'm probably going to get so much spam mail, I created on some site a username and password. I got on there. I didn't even know if she was writing fictionally. I just felt that these, these questions have an answer. And the answer is God. 
who came in the person of Jesus and died on a cross to demonstrate just how much he loves us. And, and, he, and through it, he gave us a hope that transcends all of the disappointment that we can possibly face. And so I got on there and I wrote in the, the least cliche way I could possibly write, hey, look, I read it. And I want you to know that the only thing, the only thing that has prevented me from feeling like that at times in my life is that I trust that God loves me. And I trust it because I've read about it in the Bible. And I go to a church where that type of love is demonstrated. And I just want to say what I said to Jaron. Because we feel it sometimes. Should I just give up? Is it totally hopeless? And we might feel it on a grand scale. Is our country ever going to return to God? We might feel it on a family scale. Is my family ever going to get better? We might feel it on an individual level. Like, can I ever find any type of hope, any type of optimism? I've messed up too many times. And what God says is that disappointments dissipate when we actively participate and we patiently anticipate the work of God. I can rhyme it for you. I'll say it again because this rhyme worked out better than most. Disappointments dissipate when we actively participate and patiently anticipate the work of God. You see, when we, when we go, God, I'm going to be about what you're about and I'm going to do what you want me to do and I'm going to serve you, we start to see disappointment and our lives dwindle. And when we say, God, I, I know I haven't seen your promises fulfilled and I don't feel blessed every day, but I'm gonna trust it to happen eventually, then we overcome disappointment. Become a Christian if you're not. Stop letting disappointment keep you from being a Christian. I know you knew somebody who was mean that was a Christian or you tried going to church once and it was a disappointment for you and people weren't that friendly. But don't let disappointment stand in the way of, uh, of you not being disappointed anymore. Become a Christian. Do God's work in your life no matter what disappointments you face and then trust in God's promises. Remembering that disappointments dissipate when we actively participate and patiently anticipate the work of God in our lives. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that, that you are the solution to our disappointment. Not because you take away all of our disappointments. Not because, God, you, you make it so that we are super successful or super happy uh, because we choose to have a relationship with you and we choose to act, actively participate in the work that you're doing and we choose to trust in your promises, God. But because in the midst of all the hurt and all the pain, you still provide us hope through your presence and through your spirit and through the promises that you have given us of eternal life. God, I pray for every person who sits in front of me and, and every person who sits behind me and every person who, who, who will listen online that doesn't know you as their savior, and especially for those who have, have been prevented or have chosen not to come to you, who have chosen not to be Christians because of disappointment, I pray that they would give you their lives, realizing that, that any other hope that they have in this life will ultimately end up in disappointment too. And I pray that they would give their lives to you, Lord, knowing that you, you alone, like my grandma used to say to me, are the only thing that will not disappoint us. God, you never have. You've never, even when I have disappointed you, you have never disappointed me. And Lord, I pray for, for the rest of of these people, including myself, who know you, who love you, 
And I pray, God, that no matter what disappointments we've faced, no matter how hurt we have been, no matter how difficult life has been when we expected it to be great, that we would make a decision, God, right here and now maybe, but for the rest of our lives, Lord, we would make a decision to actively serve you, to be obedient to you, to place your will and your desires and your goals and vision for this world above our own and to trust, God, that you will not fall through on your promises, that you will not prove untrustworthy, Lord. Lord, let us do your work and cling to your hope because you are the only the only source of true optimism. And I pray, God, in our country and in our families and in our lives, we would always be hopeful because we are always serving you and always trusting you. I pray these things in your name. Amen.